It's Mother's Day, and when I think of uh, Mother's Day, I think of some of those expressions that I heard about mothers growing, or my, my mother say growing up. I mean, you think about it. You've heard expressions that you found yourself repeating as you got older, and you started becoming like your mother. Uh, for myself, I remember idle hands are the devil's playground, workshop playground. I remember hearing these different things. For me, my mother's, it was a playground, and, and in my life, I think she knew that if I wasn't busy, I was going to cause problems. Uh, like any little boy, especially my boys, they need to be engaged in some type of activity. If not, then evil happens. Uh, to, and, and I shared this story before, uh, for those that might remember it, but it was um, when I was about nine years old, almost ten, I, uh, I had this baseball bat. It was a Louis Slugger baseball bat. I was in Little League like many of the kids were. It was a black baseball bat, and no one else had a black baseball bat, and I didn't like that. I wanted to look like everybody else that kids do at that age and want to fit in. And so I wanted a natural wood bat, and someone told me that if I took paint thinner, I could take it and scrape that black paint off. And so I put paint thinner on the bat, and I scraped all the paint off, and it was great. And someone said, well, to get the paint thinner off, you just need to light it on fire. It'll go up real quick, and it'll stop. And I'm like, okay, in my nine-year-old mind, I think that's pretty good logic. But I recognized at the time that it could catch me on fire. So I took the bat, and I put it down on the ground, and I held it with my finger like this and pulled myself away from it, and I took the lighter, and I lit it. And I, I noticed it went up really fast, and my reaction was, let the bat go so I don't catch fire. So I let it go, and the bat falls. Well, I'd been working on this baseball bat for a couple of hours, which means that there was paint thinner all over the garage. And so when I hit the bat hit the ground, next thing I know, fire breaks out all over the garage. And I'm panicking, and I realize that my butt is going to hurt a lot in the next, because I knew that I was going to get paddled, spanked. I was in big trouble. So I ran outside trying to figure out what to do. I threw open the garage door, and I see that the lawnmower is the most precious and most expensive item in there. So I grab the lawnmower, and I pull it out. And as soon as I do it, boom, it blows up. I run back in the garage. Now the whole garage is on fire. And I am nine years old going, what am I going to do? And I'm trying to panic, and I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And Now, we had this heater. Maybe you guys have had one of these. In, in winter, we had a kerosene heater. In our home, right? And you'd fill it with kerosene, you put it on and turn it on. Well, we had to fill that, we had a big giant drum of kerosene just sitting in there. And I'm, I'm, I'm running around going, what next to do, what next to do? And I see that this, this drum is starting to swell. And I don't know what to do. And next thing I know, uh, the neighbor had seen the fire, runs with a fire extinguisher and puts it out and gets me out of the, the and everything was, was salvaged. So, but that drum could have exploded. And, I mean, I, I would... I don't know what, I mean, I'd be dead. But I, I, I felt really bad after that because it was my mom's birthday. It wasn't the best birthday present to give your mother, like almost blowing up the garage or setting it on fire. But, you know, my mother realized at that moment in time that I needed to be occupied. <laughs> because if I wasn't occupied, I could burn the house down and perhaps blow up my block. So she realized that idle hands... If I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do, it, it was gonna, I was going to get into trouble. So I needed to be engaged. And, and you know, that's actually a biblical concept. It's a biblical principle. Matter of fact, we see a great picture of this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where Samuel, it says, he writes about King David. And King David was the ruler. He was to be at his work, the work that God had for him, which was to be king. And it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, one of his like, chief generals, uh, and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. 
But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, it's a telling verse. The reason that God has that is, is it sets it up for what's next. David is supposed to be out. It's the springtime. He's supposed to be out doing his task, the job that God has for him. But he doesn't. He stays back. And because of that, he ends up hanging out on his roof when he sees the beautiful Bathsheba taking a bath and ends up lusting after her and then brings her. And if you're familiar with this story, he ends up committing adultery with her, which leads to an unexpected or unplanned pregnancy and then the murder of uh, her husband to cover it up and then judgment upon his life. And it all begins when he's doing, when he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. His idle hands ended up being a great opportunity for the devil to use to create, cause great destruction. So we see that God then has a plan for us not to be idle. Matter of fact, God has, his intent is for us to be working. I remember when I had a, a professor when I was in seminary who had said to me, he asked a question to our seminary class. He said, will there be work in heaven? And I raised my hand and I said, if there's work in heaven, then it's not heaven. That's what I said, and he looked at me, and he smiled. A very wise man, a great deal of education, written many books, traveled all over the world. He goes, you will be thoroughly disappointed. Well, I was shocked. Wait a minute, there's going to be work in heaven? Well, what does that mean? How does that work? I mean, what is work? Why do we work? Is it just to get a paycheck? What's it for? Why did God create it? Is it a product of the fall? Or is there something more? How are we to do our work? Is one one job of work more... uh, should be honored more than another? Or is, can anyone do their work in such a way that God would receive glory? See, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians because they were confused about work. They were confused about a lot of things, but they were confused about mainly the second coming of Christ because many of them thought Jesus was going to come right away. So why keep doing my job? What's the point of that? It's like the man uh, not too long ago who had heard uh, one false teacher give the second coming of Christ at such and such a date. So he knew, he, he figured it was about a month out, and he's like, well, here's what I'll do. I'm going to go and I'm going to get the nicest Cadillac I can find, and I'm going to drive it around because I'm not going to have to make any payments on it, so I might as well enjoy myself before Jesus comes back. Well, he was sorely disappointed when Jesus didn't return in his time frame. But that's the mindset, is that Paul is correcting the Thessalonians because many of them thought, Jesus is coming back, I didn't need to work, and I don't need to work. So Paul is correcting that and showing through the Scriptures how we are to do our jobs because he wants all of our work and all of our lives lived under the very lordship of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look and see what work is, how we are to do it, why God has put it there for us, and how we might use it so that God's kingdom might expand it. It might be expanded and that we might increase in joy. So I would encourage you to open up the Bible, your Bible, if you, don't, if you have one, to tune in, to look in. We're going to be going through this passage and breaking it down to see what God has for us, how we are to live, how we are to work in such a way that God receives glory and that we increase our joy in God. So let's pray. Ask for his blessing on our message time. Father, we ask you to speak to us, open wide our hearts for the truth, to the truth of your word, that we might truly be able to apprehend and comprehend what it is that you have for us and why you have laid out this passage for our benefit. Lord, help us to see and redeem our work so that your name might receive great glory, might become more famous uh, through our work. We pray you bless us and use us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start off in verse 6, shall we? 
starts off, Paul is writing again to the Thessalonians, as we have heard. Uh, they were a young group of Christians. Uh, many of them new believers, had a great zeal for the Lord, but were confused about some things in regarding the end of time. And Paul wrote to correct that, and then also to tell them how to work, knowing that they couldn't just withdraw from society, but they needed to keep at the task at hand until Jesus comes. But he says, now we command you, brothers. Now it's in the imperative, mo- uh, imperative mood here. He is commanding them, brothers. These are people within the family of God. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Now, this word idleness is an interesting word in Greek. Remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. And it is ataktos. And it means properly out of line, without order, or out of God's appointed proper order, unruly, refusing to observe God's guidelines. Now, these people were out of God's created order because they were refusing to work, and they're failing to follow God's command. Now, see, what Paul is showing us here when he says, now we command you, brothers, he is laying out and and showing us how to adopt a biblical work ethic. That's the first thing that he's trying to show us. He wants us to adopt a biblical work ethic. He wants us to look and understand what work is in the sight of God. Why did God create work? Is work a product of the fall? Or is work something more that God has for us? Well, first of all, he wants to show us that it is part of the creation mandate. Work originated with Adam and Eve. That's where God started it off. Matter of fact, we see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he was to work the garden. He was to keep it. He was also to name all of the animals. God brought them to Adam for him to name, for him to exercise dominion over these things. See, that is one aspect. God has created us to work. We are to work. God worked himself. He created the heavens and the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh. God is working. He has created us in his image. We are to be working and be at a task what he has for us. So it's part of the creation mandate. And we need to understand that work is something not only that God created us to do, but it's through our work that we not only take care of our families, but that we glorify God. And one work we have to understand is not different or more glorious than another. As the theologian and Christian statesman, a man named Francis Schaeffer, he put it this way. He said, one thing you should very definitely have in mind, that it is that a ministry such as teaching the Bible in a college is no higher calling intrinsically than being a businessman or doing something else. Or as Martin Luther, uh, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, lived in the 1500s, he says, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household task. He's saying that you don't have to be a monk or a priest to do what God wants you to do. You can be taking care of your kids and be a stay-at-home mom and raise your children in such a way that is pleasing and holy in the sight of God. And we have to redeem that understanding of what God has said and laid out for us. We have another man named William Perkins who said this, uh, Polishing shoes is a sanctified and holy act. He added, The action of a shepherd in keeping sheep performed as I have said it is as good as a work before God as is the action of a judge giving sentence or of a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. Meaning that God has given everyone a task, an ability to do a certain type of job or work. God has a task for you. And just because you're not, you may not be up here preaching doesn't mean that yours is less. Matter of fact, yours is just different. 
And we all are expected to be stewards of what God has given unto us. And we must make sure that we do our jobs well. We must make sure that we are being good. We are mastering our jobs. Just like Adam, again, was brought all of the, the animals of the earth, and he was to name each one. He was exercising dominion by owning the environment around him and the task that he had. When you're owning your job, when you know every aspect of it, it's a means by which you can glorify and are glorifying God, to master that task, whatever it might be. If it's a teacher, it's knowing your students. It's knowing how to communicate with them. If it's a nurse, it's taking care of your patients in such a way that they are, they are given dignity and you treat them with love and respect. If you're an engineer, you're working at a computer terminal, it's making sure that you're doing all of the things that you have to do. If you're driving a truck, it's making sure that you're not engaging in poor conversation or, or coarse joking, but it's, it's testifying about who Jesus is. Whatever your work might be, it's doing it to the glory of God, and that's part of God's creation mandate. Matter of fact, we see even Jesus was engaged in occupation, as it says, as Bishop Thomas Beacon put it, our Savior Jesus Christ was a carpenter. His apostles were fishermen. St. Paul was a tent maker. Or I like it. It's, it's a good way to, to, the point that we're trying to get across and what we're trying to understand is that all of our lives are to be lived under the authority of God's word. It's not just church on Sunday. It's not just experiencing miracles. It's about daily discipleship. Everyone wants deliverance, but not too many people want discipleship because discipleship's where the small choices are made. People want the big decisions and the, the, the bang flash, but they don't want to die daily. And here he's showing us how to die daily, how to live our life in such a way that God receives glory. And we need to understand, we have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives. We have our church life, we have our home life, and we have our work life. That's not a biblical understanding. A biblical understanding is everything is lived under the umbrella of God's word. Family, home, church, all of these things. Uh, work life are all under the umbrella or the banner of God's glory. Or as Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian as well as a politician, put it, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ would not cry out, this is mine, it belongs to me. In other words, he wants every aspect of your life. Not just you praying the prayer, it's more than that. That's why Christianity was originally called the way in the book of Acts, because people were on a pathway. They were walking. It was a life under the authority of God's word, which affected our marriage, which affects our finances, which affects our entertainment, which affects every single aspect of our lives. Not just one portion of it, not just faith on a Sunday morning. It's so much more. God wants our work. He created it, and he made it as a means by which we might bring glory, to make God more famous and also increase our joy in God. However, work is tainted. Work is tainted. Why? Because of the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences to that action. There was a curse that came a part of it. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it. In other words, Adam, you're going to have a hard time doing your job. It's going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. 
by the sweat of your face. It's going to be hard. You shall eat your bread. That's how you're going to earn your money to make a living. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work is going to be hard. But yet God cares a great deal about it, even though it's going to be painful. There are going to be problems. There are going to be unrealistic expectations from your boss. There's going to be gossip that you have to deal with and people going behind your back and trying to bring you down. But you're to still do your job in such a way that you are free of accusation and that you are testifying that Jesus Christ is your Lord so that people can look at your life and look at your work and see Jesus in you. Now, God cares so much about your work about what you do and how you do it. He shows us, matter of fact, he cares so much that he, he gives us instructions on how we are to treat those who can work but refuse to. All right, These aren't people that he's talking to that cannot work. These are people that can and refuse to. And we look at this, and in, 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 it comes with a, a massive word of caution. A word of caution. We can see this in verse 10. Actually, go back to verse 6 first. In verse 6 we see, Now he commands you, brothers, imperative mood, this isn't optional, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. This is pretty firm. He says that you keep away, that you stay away from these people. Now that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Just because they won't do it. I mean, they're not listening to God's word. That doesn't mean we can't be friends with them. What does that mean? I mean, doesn't Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Right? We see Jesus engaging with prostitutes and those who are uh, the tax collectors, those who were considered the riffraff of society, and Jesus is engaging with them, and yet now Paul is saying that we're to stay away from him. I, I feel tension here. How am I supposed to work this? What's the, what's the deal? What's the difference? How do I, I, I engage people that are lost and love those who are lost and not obeying God's word, and yet here I'm to keep away from people who are disregarding God's word? Well, the key word right there in the text is the word brothers. See, he puts a difference. He says, brothers, stay away from one. He's referring to those who claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet are refusing to do what God's word says to do. And we see that, by the way, within the scriptures. We see Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners at the frustration of the religious elite that they, they chastise and they, 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 get, they get angry with him. But at the same time, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, do not even eat with a person who calls themselves a brother in Christ if they are sexually immoral. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh. How do I deal with that? I mean, how do we deal with that in our world today? Our world's not a lot different than the ancient world. See, the the difference is, is one claims to be a follower of Christ and refuses to follow what God's Word says. They're selective in their Bible passages. They want to do what they want to do, and yet they're not willing. They have an idol of some sort that is higher than God's word. Either they were hurt some way in some relationship or whatever it is, but they're putting this idol above what God says because they know better than God does. So they are sacrificing themselves in the process. But God is saying, don't even eat with such a one. Now, it's hard in our society to understand that as much. So we have as a dividing line membership. We want people to come from all different backgrounds that are broken, that have, that have been hurt by, by, I mean, have gone through life and been hurt by the choices they made. We want them to come and feel grace and the love of God. But when a person becomes a member, we have a higher standard because they know better. And now we're going to come alongside because we know that the Spirit of God is within them and that they are taking God's Word seriously. And we're going to call them to an account seriously, to show them grace. 
Now here, it's referring to work, and he's saying that this is a person who refuses to carry their weight and their load, and they're bringing everybody else down in the church. And Paul is warning him so hard, he's saying, keep away from such a person. Matter of fact, in verse 10, he really brings down the hammer. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's serious. We're not even going to give you food. This is God's tough love right here. People say, well, would God do that? Yes, because it's the prodigal son principle. That's what it is. That God will give you what you want, and he will give you over to the consequences of those actions to the point where you will come to the end of yourself that you'll come back to do what he wants you to do. That's it. We give a person over to that. And that's what we see here, is they're giving themselves. He, he's saying that not willing, we're not going to show him that. We're not going to give him food until he comes to the end of himself and sees that he has to carry his own load. It's not what we call a sin of commission as much as a sin of omission. Sin of commission is the action that we know we are to do. I mean, we're not to do and we do it. A sin of omission is knowing the good that we are to do and not doing it. Right? So here's the sin of omission that's being involved. And it's a word of caution. Paul brings down the hammer and says, don't even eat for such a one. That's pretty serious. To let the one who eat refuses, uh, or who refuses to work, to allow him to continue, so, so he will not continue in his rebellion. He will never learn the lesson of being industrious and working if others continue to feed him. They're enabling a sinful behavior. It's God's tough love approach, and he's not kidding around. Now, how are we to do our work? Well, let's lay it out. We, have to, we, we see that we are to follow the example before us. Look at verse 7. For you yourselves know how we ought to imitate you, because we were not idle when we were with you. Imitate is literally the word mimic, of mimicking someone's life. We all have an example, someone that we wish to follow, wish we to do things the way that they have done it, whether it's a parent, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's some goal in our life. We all have someone that we are looking to as a means of inspiration. Paul is saying, look at me and see how I've conducted my life and imitate me. That's the example that I want you to follow. Now, he lays out what this example looks like in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Now, Paul uh, was a tent maker. He made tents. That's how he supplied himself. And he knew that this church was a very fledgling church. They didn't have the means of paying and taking care of him full time. So he would be working night and day so that he was free from accusation. People wouldn't think that he was doing the ministry for the money. He's not just trying to feed his pockets. He's not trying to just grow and take care of everything for his own needs. He's caring more about the gospel for it to, for it to go forth. Not that he didn't have that right to ask to be supported, because he lays it out within 1 Timothy chapter 5 in this way. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and a laborer deserves his wages. Paul is saying that I want to be a blessing to you. Even though I have that right, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be a burden upon you. I want to be a blessing and not a burden to you. He's seeking to be a blessing to the people that are around him. and didn't want to be a burden, didn't want to drag down the people because he had the ability to work and he had the means by which he could do that. So he was doing it. And again, this isn't for those who cannot work 
or who are, and it's not someone talking about a full-time job, especially in this world. People were taking care many times of their own needs, growing their own crops. They're working in the home. They're working all the time. They're not just sitting around, though, and just waiting for everybody else to take care of them. This is God's tough love. He wanted to be a blessing and not a burden. But notice in verse 6 that we are commanded, and this command comes in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. See, we've seen that we are to adopt a biblical work ethic and that we are to imitate the example before us, but we also must embrace the Lord's exhortation. God is exhorting and he's commanding us to work. That's why he says once in verse 6 and once in verse 12, we command you, command. They want, he is commanding us to do our work the way that God wants us to do it. Now, what does this look like? It's, it's the understanding of not doing, being idle. Actually, look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Now, this word for idleness literally means wasting, uh, not, excuse me, not idleness. That means out of line. But he says, busy at work, but busy bodies. The word busy body literally means wasting one's labor or not working properly. In other words, meddling, going around doing stuff they weren't supposed to be doing. We are to do our work and do it well as if we're working for the Lord, not for our company, not for the government, and not for our boss. We're to do our jobs for the Lord. As we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants. This was, he's talking about people within the system of slavery, specifically. Uh, slavery was rampant within the ancient world. He wasn't trying to call for an embellishment of it because it was such a massive thing. But he was calling for people to learn how to live in the middle of it and still glorify Christ in the midst of a difficult situation. Bond servants, and we can use that to apply to employee-employer relationship. Uh, the same principle remains. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as you were your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, don't do your job just to please your boss. Do your job to please your heavenly boss. Not your earthly one. When I was early on in ministry, I I had a man come to me, and uh, he'd been kind of watching me as I entered into this ministry. And he said, he came up and put his arms crossed, and he goes, you know, we're not seeing something from you. And he wanted me to ask. And I I just said, yeah, that's that's good. And he goes, well, aren't you going to ask what that is? I said, no. He goes, why not? I said, because I'm not anybody's performing monkey. I said, I'm not here to work for you. I'm here to work for God. And I know what I'm good at. I'm not, I'm not against receiving counsel, but if you're asking me to, to, to do something just to make you happy, I'm not here for that. I'm here to please God first and foremost. And I'm not here just to cater to you because if I find out what you like, I'm going to be tempted to just cater to you and, I, and really not care about it. I said, I want to care about it and let it flow out of my relationship with God. He smiled and he goes, very wise. And he walked away. So it's learning to live our life before the audience of one, not just our earthly employer. Not just doing it while our boss is around, which means not wasting time. It means not, not lying, not just saying stuff to please our boss, not gossiping behind our boss's back, not trying to do anything to bring them down, no matter how much you are tempted to and how badly they treat you, that it does not give you the right biblically to talk back in that way to them. It means not disparaging them. It means doing your work well for the glory of God because you're ultimately serving Jesus we need to use our labor 
our jobs, our work, to glorify Christ, to not only show who Christ is to those who are unbelievers, but to use our work to cultivate a relationship with God. Or as William Tyndale, the Protestant reformer and scholar of the 16th century, who translated the Bible into early modern English of his day, wrote, If our desire is to please God, then pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word is all one. Do your work for the Lord and not for men. Now, how do you do this? That's the question. How do I do this? Well, many different ways. First of all, realize that God made you to work. And when you do your work well, it's a testimony to His goodness and grace. We also do it well when we realize that we are to show other people who Jesus is through our work. If people were to look at your work, would they be able to see that you are a Jesus follower? Meaning that, are you just lazy? Are you being diligent? Would they look at you and think if you're a person of integrity? Or would they look at your life and say, if that's who Jesus is, I don't want him. See, that's one of the things the Bible reminds us of, how we are to live, how we are to work. Paul actually had spoken to the Thessalonians about it previously in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Not that he's disparaging those who are not doing manual labor. He's contrasting this to what was going on within Thessalonica because there were many different philosophers who just like to walk around all day and think about what is means. He's saying, don't waste your time. I want you to do your job and do it well as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Outsiders. In other words, unbelievers are looking at your life by your work. And you'd be dependent upon no one. Because remember, the Thessalonians had rejected in a large way. After the church had grown, the people of the community had rejected the message of Jesus Christ. And they had ran Paul out. And so Paul is writing to them saying, you are in the midst of a hostile situation. Do your job. Do it well. And then you will be free from accusation because they're going to think that you're doing this just for the money. Instead, I want you to do your job such a way that they will see Jesus in you. They'll be dependent upon no one. See, we can see that this work that God wants us to do involves a settled work. A settled work. Now, you might wonder, what does that mean? Settled means rested. It's, it's set. Now, look at verse 12, and I'll explain how this word comes out, how, why I've chosen this word. Now, such persons, we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. Now, what's fascinating about this word quietly, in, in Greek it implies quietness, uh, calmness, For the believer, it's used of God-produced calm, which includes an inner tranquility that supports appropriate action. It doesn't mean speechlessness. That's not what it's referring to. That I have to to do my job, shh, quiet. That's not what he's referring to there. The idea is of calm, settled, rested. It carries the idea of not being involved in the affairs and meddling in other people's lives but of one who is diligent about the task, doing his own work and doing it well. And it carries the idea of not chasing fantasies. This is where I'm going to step on toes. Because our world today is so addicted with being being famous. And even Christians, I've seen this with Christians, we think, oh, they made it. He or she made it. They got their dream. They're famous. You know what? God could care less about your fame. I mean, when I hear the term fame and Christian together, all I hear is a toilet flush. I'm serious. All I see is people just, all they're trying to do is Christianize their sinful desires. 
They want to be known. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have ambition. I'm not saying that at all. Ambition is okay as long as it's providing you to do the best of your ability. But if your goal is to be better than everyone else and to have your name up in lights, then that is sinful. Matter of fact, Paul lays it out. I mean, not Paul, but the scriptures lay it out in Proverbs. I'm going to share these verses with you. It's in the New Living Translation. I'll give you the ESV translation in a moment. But it says, A hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense. And that's what our culture is doing today. It's the Instagram selfie, I'm famous, YouTube, get me out there, I want to be famous. You know what? You could be famous. You could be the Super Bowl MVP, you could be the Major League Baseball MVP, you could be on Broadway, you could win the presidency of the United States and lose your soul. That's what the scripture says. I can't tell you how many Christians I see are promoting, oh, they're on The Voice, they did this or they did that, great, grand, okay, hallelujah. What does that mean? What does it mean, ultimately speaking? I mean, I've seen Christian singer after Christian singer growing up in church, serving the Lord, and then they, people are like, well, you need to go bigger. Bigger than serving God? Sure, what is that? So they, they, decide, they get famous, and you know what they do is they leave God in the process. I can tell you one after another after another after another. Here, it's saying it out. Matter of fact, again, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 19, a hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies ends up in poverty. Do you know what the word literally, literally means? You see it in the English Standard Version. It is worthless pursuits. And when worthless pursuits are pursuits that are worthless in the sight of God, and what man might say is great, God says is not so great. So what are you spending your time doing? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to get? It's ultimately, in the best place, is to want to obey God and what he wants you to do, to do your job and do it well. And it's not to say that you shouldn't try to find another job. If it can better you and advance you and help expand the kingdom of God, you should do so. God has given us that ability to do so. But if you're out there to, be fa- to have fame and fortune and all the stuff that goes with it, that's not biblical. I've seen too many TV preachers stand up and, and basically take the American dream and they put a Christian label on it. And they say, God wants you to have this. That's not what God wants you to have. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. The Son of Man took up his cross and died daily. Not that he could get a Cadillac. We can't Christianize the American dream. The American dream is not God's dream. That's not biblical Christianity. The people are swallowing it left and right. We have to say, what does God want us to do? And he wants us, and here's, here's where it gets really hard for people. When it says broad is the pathway to destruction, and if you find it, narrow is the road to eternal life. I mean, broad is the pathway to destruction. That's where everybody's headed. But narrow is the road to eternal life, and if you find it. It, wasn't, it, was ser- it was serious. But see, what I've noticed, what people want, people want deliverance and not discipleship. They want the flashbang. They want the miracles of God and experience God. But yet they're not willing to die daily in their work life and in their married life and how they conduct themselves. And that is where the rubber meets the road. That's where faith is forged in the everyday life. Not to say that God is not the God of the miraculous. But remember, the people that came, to, came for the miracles, Jesus didn't do the miracles for them. He shows the miracles when we're obedient. That's where he shows the miracles. When we, do, we follow him in the little things is when he shows himself in the larger things. 
we need to get back on track and, and, and really find a cure to this, I mean, this antidote for our society that's so busy promoting all of this stuff that people are losing their souls in the process. It's not about Christianizing the American dream. Not at all. Matter of fact, I, I was at a church before uh, I ever came to Village Bible Church. I had a church that wanted to interview me for a job in Kentucky. And I went down there to see a service. And it was a, it, they'd taken a warehouse and converted it. Beautiful facility and great uh, tech. I mean, it was amazing. The lights and everything. It was kind of breathtaking. And then I, I sat in there and they had a guest speaker that day. And he gets up there and he starts to tell the story about God fulfilling your dreams. That God wants to fulfill your dreams. And I'm sitting there going, I don't remember that in Scripture. But I, I want to hear what he's saying. And he starts talking about Marilyn Monroe and Elvis. And he talks to Jim Carrey. And the whole point of his message hinges on Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey as a theological illustration. And the point was, is Jim Carrey, early on in his career, had taken a check before he got famous and wrote a check for $10 million to himself in the hopes that one day he would realize that dream and he could cash it. And he's saying, that's what God wants for you. And my jaw almost dropped the floor. I'm like, I don't remember ever Jesus ever saying that. In fact, I remember Jesus dying, I mean, dying a pretty serious death in order to provide forgiveness of sins. Not so you could self-actualize a $10 million check for yourself. And see, that's what our world is at right now. And many churches have gone that way. You see it TV preachers all the time. Just because they have a Bible and say, this is my Bible, and it says what it says, it says, and it has what it says I have, doesn't mean that they're following it in context in what God has presented of it. This is not fun news. It doesn't bring the crowds. But you don't always see Jesus. matter of fact, you see Jesus giving the, the crowd-thinning sermons at times. And he doesn't explain himself. When the crowds come to him and Jesus says something pretty serious in John chapter 6, he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. And people are like, Jesus, not the drink my blood sermon. Come on now, we want to fill this place. We want to make you famous. Jesus doesn't explain himself. He lays out the cost of discipleship to take up your cross daily and follow me to die to oneself. That's what he's laying out for us. We have to understand that doing your job might be taking up your cross daily. See, our goal should be for God's glory, not mine. And if we ever find ourselves getting off track with that, we need to make some major readjustments. We're going to be doing our work for the glory of God, not our own. And here's the idea of doing one's work for the glory of God. Personal fulfillment, yes, but that's secondary for God's glory. Whether, and that's what, or what occupation you are in. And don't forget that. It's also for the purpose of supporting ourselves. Supporting ourselves. Look at verse 12. And to earn their own living. He actually had said it before previously in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12, and be dependent on no one. Paul felt the need to emphasize this because he, he wanted us to understand that we need to support ourselves so that we're not draining or be a burden on other people. Remember, the people of Thessalonica, were, it was already a tension that was there, and they were accusing the church, trying to find accusations. And he's saying, don't be dependent upon them, then they're going to dictate to you how to live. When you're doing it, then you can live completely to the glory of God. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this that I had a professor who told me that work will be in heaven. I wanted to address that before we close our time today. We see and get an idea of this actually in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, where John, by the Holy Spirit, writes, No longer will there be any curse, meaning the, the effects of the curse of Adam and Eve will be removed. It'll be removed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. That's us. We'll be serving God. That's working. And you know what? It'll be fun. 
Now, I, I know many of you hear the word work and fun, and it seems like an oxymoron, like military intelligence, but that's how it is. Work will be fun. It will be fun. It will be fun. So we need to understand that. We need to understand that it will be fun. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, we read that we will actually reign with Him. And at the end of time, according to Joel and the prophet, Joel and prophet Micah, we will beat our swords into plowsheds, which means that we will be cultivating the land and working, but it will be a different kind of working, more akin to that what Adam and Eve did at the very beginning of time when they were still in the garden. Knowing that God created us to work and that we will work, there will be work in eternity, although the curse is removed, how then should we work today? How do you view your work? How do you do your work? Maybe you're a soldier. How do you do your, your work as a soldier for the glory of God? I mean, even the soldiers came to Jesus and said, how should we work? Jesus said, be content with your wages. Be fair. Be just. You need to be, how are you doing your work? Are you doing your work in such a way that God can receive glory through your work life? How is your attitude? How are you with your time? How are you? Are you trying to cheat your boss? Are you trying to steal from them? Or are you being a good steward of it, re- realizing that you're only working truly before an audience of one? that he is the one to whom we are ultimately accountable to. We need to keep our mind set on that. We need to make sure we are doing our jobs and doing them well. Now, I want to conclude today with a story of Stephen Baldwin, he of the Baldwin clan, the Baldwin brothers. Um, many may not realize this, but he came to know Christ several years ago, and he's actively following, and uh, people call him the Jesus freak of Hollywood. His testimony, though, has to do, not how, how, it's how he came into the Lord, what's, what's fascinating. It was through his Brazilian housekeeper, Augusta. And what's fascinating about it is they hired this woman, and she came in, and she's always singing songs. And his wife, her name, her name is Kenya, actually had heard her sing songs, and it was in Portuguesa. So she, but she could hear the name of Jesus coming back and forth. And so she sat her down one day, and she goes, why are you always singing about Jesus? And she goes, well, and she starts sharing the gospel with her. Well, Kenya comes to, goes to church and ends up coming to the saving knowledge of who Christ is and ends leading her husband, Stephen, to the Lord. And they said, how could you have find so much joy in being a housekeeper, is what they said to her. And she goes, you think that's what I'm called here to be, is a housekeeper? That might be the, main, but the means by which I... I, I take care of my family, but that's not my job. My job is to glorify God. And God had told me and shared with me and, and given me a vision that I was to come to America and I was to work for this family and that I would share the gospel with them and they would come to the saving knowledge of Christ and they would be able to help reach the world with the glory of his name. It's pretty cool. Through the housekeeper. See, she was redeeming her work for the glory of God and using that to win other people. What are you doing? How are you doing your work? Whatever it might be, whether it's taking care of little children and changing diapers, praying for those children, taking care of them. Whether it's working as a dentist, whether it's being a doctor, whether it's driving a truck, whether it's uh, working in a warehouse or operating a forklift, working at a computer terminal all day. How are you doing your job for the glory of God? How are you delighting and doing it in such a way that God has made famous through your work? Don't think that you have to be in full-time ministry to bring God glory through your work. There's a, a man that I knew was a pastor. He ended up uh, having to go out of ministry, and he thought, you know, I, I, my whole heart and my mind, I wanted to serve God, but I end up getting this job in this bank, and it's not ministry. And that's what he thought to himself at first, but through time, he started noticing and interacting with colleagues, and then a Bible study was born, and then many Bible studies came out of that, and he was talking to me, and he said, you know, 
I'm actually doing more ministry now as a banker than I ever did as a pastor. You see, he recognized that I needed to bloom where I'm planted. I need to do my ministry and find my ministry in the work and the task that God has for me. So are you fulfilling God's purpose for your life through your work? Is he calling you to do much more for his glory? Whether it's through your secular job or maybe he is calling you to full-time vocational ministry, the important thing is that you do your job right and do it well so that God might increase in glory and be made more famous and that many might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord through your work. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we are reminded of the truth of who you are, that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might have redemption and new life in and through him. And that abundant life not only is for eternity, but it begins in the here and now, where all of our life is to be lived under your Lordship, whether it's our marriages, whether it's our work, whether it's how we, the entertainment that we put before our eyes, whether it's how we, we spend our money, whether it's how we love our spouse or take care of our children. Lord, help us to live in such a way that your name is made more famous. So Lord, please glorify your name in our lives. Draw us near to yourself and do such a work that only you can receive credit and glory for. So Lord, please help us. Give us the strength to do our jobs well, to be men and women of integrity, not chasing fantasies, but realizing that you've given us a mandate to subdue the creation, to exercise the dominion over it by doing our jobs well. And Lord, whether we have ambition to go on to more, may you guide us. May you correct us when our sinful desires come in the way and we are tempted to baptize them in the name of Christ, really just putting a label of Christianizing, Christianizing it rather than truly having a heart that wants to serve you through our work. May you rebuke us and draw us near to yourself and use us to bring your name great glory. Lord, please touch us and use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.